My father has always said to me, the only limits to your success are your own imagination. From WBEZ Chicago. I had and still have an extraordinary imagination. There were worlds inside their nations and lands, Shondalands. This is Making. I'm Brandon Pope. My father saying that was a gift because I really believed growing up I could be whatever I imagined. Today, it's Making Shonda. Shonda Rhimes has been referred to as TV's greatest, creating smash hit shows like Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, and How to Get Away with Murder. She dominated ABC. I am many things, stupid is not one of them. So pick me, choose me, love me. That's how you get away with murder. And her blockbuster deal with Netflix helped usher in the streaming revolution, most notably with the Bridgerton franchise. Yes, that is what happens. When one is angry. When one burns for someone who does not feel the same. But before all that, she was a kid from the Chicago suburbs, a kid with a wild imagination. Never take a learning opportunity away from another student. No matter how smart you need everyone to think you are. How do you define the storylines of a generation? How do you elbow your way into Hollywood history? What were the years that made Shonda Rhimes? Speaking to me is a privilege. You do not have privileges. Do you hear me? Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Shonda Rhimes has five siblings. She's the youngest of all of them. The family grew up in University Park, a south suburb of Chicago. Her father was a school administrator and her mother a professor at DePaul University. I was really raised by a very, very powerful mother. My mother would never have allowed me to just be the nice girl. As she tells it, she was a quiet kid without any friends. Instead, she entertained herself by weaving elaborate fictions in her mind. Here's Shonda speaking at the Human Rights Campaign Gala in 2015. Let me describe myself as a kid. I was highly intelligent, way too chubby, sensitive, nerdy, and painfully shy. I wore Coke bottle thick glasses. I had two cornrow braids that traveled down the sides of my head in a way that was not pretty. And here's the kicker. I was often the only black girl in my class. I did not have friends. I was very much alone. So I wrote. I created friends. I named them and I wrote about them in detail. You see, Shonda land, the imaginary land of Shonda, has existed since I was 11 years old. That imagination took her all the way to undergrad at Dartmouth, where she studied English and creative writing. As a senior, she ran Dartmouth's Black Underground Theater Association. But post-grad for film majors isn't always a straight shot to Hollywood. After graduating college, she moved to San Francisco and worked a desk job in advertising. But at night, she would write scripts. Here's Shonda speaking at Dartmouth in 2014. I did not dream of being a TV writer. Never, not once, when I was here in the hallowed halls of the Ivy League, did I say to myself, self, I want to write TV. I wanted to be Nobel Prize winning author Toni Morrison. That was my dream. 
I blue skied it like crazy. I dreamed and dreamed. And while I was dreaming, I was living in my sister's basement. Dreamers often end up living in the basements of relatives, FYI. <laughs> then she read about a film school in L.A. that was more competitive than Harvard Law. So she applied and got in. University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts, class of 1994. At USC, she made a connection that would change her life. So I was running Denzel's company in the early 90s. That's Deborah Martin Chase. She's the mastermind behind franchises like The Princess Diaries, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, and The Cheetah Girls. In the mid-90s, she was in charge of Mundy Lane Entertainment, Denzel Washington's company. You know, we were an important black production company. And, you know, I had a couple of white interns from USC. And I called over there and I was like, look, we, we need to have a black intern for you. And I want somebody great. I don't want just somebody who's just because, but we can offer, you know, a good opportunity for somebody. And they sent me Shonda. So what was Chase's first impression of young Shonda? We hit it off immediately, and she was very much my my mentee. It, since it quickly became clear, you know, how bright she was, and, and we just liked each other. You know, we just really were kindred spirits in terms of the kind of work we wanted to do and our perspective on elevating the images. Not just breaking down stereotypes, but elevating the images of people of color on screen. So Chase decided to invest in Shonda Rhimes. She started handing Shonda opportunity after opportunity, first as a secretary, then in the writer's room. And with every script, Shonda proved her talent. So I was developing a documentary on Hank Aaron. My last home run, number 755, gave the kids something to shoot for. So we had a piece of the documentary that was a, a docudrama that needed to be scripted. And, you know, we were on a budget. And so I recommended Shonda. So that was her first paid writing job. So, you know, needs to say she did a great job. And the documentary ended up being nominated for an Oscar and an Emmy and it won a Peabody Award. Feeling like I'd accomplished everything I could, I said goodbye to baseball. They called him the hammer. Henry Aaron. That documentary was called Hank Aaron, Chasing the Dream. Shonda is credited on IMDb as the research director. And then I hired her to write three scripts total. The one being The Princess Diaries 2, which was, was actually made. To Princess Mia. Princess Diaries 2. Mia Thermopolis has everything a girl could ever want. But at this time, she'd written a couple of things for me. And she'd also written a script for Disney development so they, they at least knew her. So when I brought up her name for Princess Diaries 2, which, you know, was a valuable franchise, it was very positively received. This is so cool! This was the first franchise Shonda worked on. And when I look back, I think 
of course this was written by Shonda Rhimes. It's a bit over the top, a little corny, but gripping nonetheless. Let's take that infamous fountain scene, for example, where the main character's loathing turns to love. You are so jealous. Why would I be jealous of Andrew? He's got to spend the rest of his life married to you. A princess and a prince who hate each other from the jump. I loathe you. I loathe you. I loathe you first. But then, by the end of the movie... I'm in love with the queen-to-be. And I'm inquiring if she loves me too. A classic enemies to lovers that's so cheesy you want to cringe, but you end up totally falling for it. And it's really here you see the beginnings of both Shonda's romantic voice and her quick ability to save a production. What was really impressive is because we we were backing into a production date. You know, the studio needed the movie and she had written a script with several drafts. And we just got to the point where we realized it just wasn't quite working. And so she did a complete about face and completely rewrote, new story, rewrote. And that ended up, you know, being the script that we used. And even at that stage, Shonda and Chase were pushing for a diverse cast. The two got on the set and saw there weren't any black princesses. So they cast Raven Simone. Some seem to have no faults, but we never like Our first meeting, I can see it right now, we were in the uh, in the animation building at Disney in the conference room. We went in the conference room, we closed the door, we sat down, we looked at each other, we were like, okay, we're putting a black princess in this movie. And again, this is what we were both about, is breaking down stereotypes and elevating images. And so we wrote with Raven in mind. There is a point during the production of Princess Diaries, too, when we can really see the kind of multitasking Shonda Rhimes is capable of. So she started telling me about this, you know, hospital script that she was writing for ABC. And I was like, that's great. But let me tell you, (laughs) we have a start date on this movie. This is a sure thing. Let's prioritize here. And, you know... We have this movie. you got to focus on the movie. And in the middle of all this, she calls me one day and she's like, "Um, I got to fly to, I don't remember, like Ohio or something to go pick up a baby. (laughs) That's right. In the middle of writing a major movie and pitching a little show about doctors, she adopted a child. She's like, I'll be back on Monday. But, you know, I got the call. I'm going to pick up the baby. So Harper appeared, you know, and and uh, in the middle of all this. And um, needless to say, uh, that little TV project is going into its 20th season, Grey's Anatomy, which is unbelievable. And, uh, and, and she got them both done. After the break, the making of ABC's untitled Shonda Rhimes project. We'll be right back.
Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. By 2004, Shonda had a few things under her belt. She wrote screenplays for Halle Berry and Britney Spears. She did Princess Diaries 2, of course. We all were like her fan club. Like At the studio, that's what your job was. You, you fought for the people. You fought for the voices you wanted. And, you know, our team was completely aligned in our belief and love for her. That's Francie Calfo. She was a VP at ABC Entertainment. And around this time, one of her colleagues introduced her to Shonda Rhimes. I cannot say enough how much Suzanne Patmore championed this woman. I mean, we can all take credit and say, we saw it too. But there's something about the first person that says like, hey, I want to introduce you to Shonda Rhimes, you know. Suzanne Patmore passed away in 2018, but she was instrumental in creating shows like Desperate Housewives, Lost, and most famously, the then-untitled Shonda Rhimes Project. So she brought the script to me. She's like, we got to do a script deal with her. I know she has a show in her. And I read it, met, totally agreed. We did a deal with her for a blind script. What a blind script is, is that we're going to pay you this amount of money and we're going to figure out what a great idea is and we're going to develop it together and sell it to the network. And I think it was never about whether she had a hit in her. It was like the when. It was like, when is that thing coming? They all got to work. First, Shonda pitched a story about two female war correspondents, but the Iraq war just broke out, so they scrapped it. Then she pitched a steamy medical drama. And and I remember one conversation that I had with Shonda where, and I'm going to be a little vague, but we gave notes on the first episode because she sold the show as Sex in the Surgery because it was when Sex in the City was really the show you wanted to be. And she said something to me that I think about so much as a producer now. Because, again, she's in the driver's seat. She's going to do the show that she has in her head, that she has in her inside of her. And it was the first time she sort of alluded to this idea that, like, when you're working on a show with your team in a dark room, the perspective that you gain and lose, you know, is very precarious. And I said, does this feel to you like sex in the surgery? And she said, you know, I'll never forget because when I saw the first episode, she goes, the entire post team clapped. And she said, I was really emotional because we just thought it was like perfect. And out of sex and the surgery, Grey's Anatomy was born. And then I got a meeting with Grey's Anatomy. Well, the untitled Shonda Rhimes Project. This is Zoanne Kleck, an executive producer on Grey's Anatomy and the show's chief medical consultant. And at this time, she was hired as a story editor for ABC to make Grey's Anatomy a reality. And at the time, 
I didn't know who Shonda Rhimes was. So I had some friends named Shonda in the past who were black. And I wondered if she might be black. (laughs) I saw that she had written Princess Diaries 2, Dorothy Dandridge's story, and the Britney Spears movie. And so that didn't give me any clues. (laughs) (laughs) And they made Grey's over on ABC a mid-season show. ABC greenlit it, sort of. We made it a mid-season show. And back in those days, like mid-season shows were a little bit like, you were always kind of disappointed if you became a mid-season show. I mean, you got picked up, so it certainly wasn't like a rejection. So I felt like Grey's Anatomy was definitely an underdog. And then, just as they got the team together, Grey's hit a roadblock. Grey's was struggling. Like, we were... um being shut down. We got shut down for a little while because it wasn't the show that they bought, apparently. Like, there was, there was it had gone kind of a dark way. It was, <laughs> there were some things that the network didn't agree with, but it was literally shut down for a little while. And um, the writers left the building. We asked Francie Calfo about Gray's getting shut down. It's a really touchy subject, to be honest, because it involves a person that wasn't very supportive, that had a lot of power. Top brass at ABC wanted to stop production. When I went, uh, when, when I was back, when I was stayed back, you know, in that meeting, I specifically remember somebody saying to me, don't spend too much time on that. But, you know, Shonda was a force. We changed some things. We moved some things around. Zoanne Clack again. ABC on that year got both Lost and Desperate Housewives. Um, Desperate Housewives was the audience that they were going for with Grays, so they didn't really need Grays anymore. And a lot of the female executives actually were pushing, pushing, pushing for Grays because they loved the voice. They loved Shonda's voice. They loved the area. They loved kind of everything about it after the shutdown and we (laughs) revamped and and all of that. And um, they were pushing, pushing. We finally got an air date in March. They convinced the powers at ABC to give the show a chance. But this moment was less of a celebration than it was a test, a trial run. They were going to give us four episodes. And if we didn't perform in four episodes, we were done. And after some pushing and shoving, Grey's Anatomy launched on ABC on March 27th, 2005. The first week we got together, we watched it. The ratings were really good, but, you know, we're a show after Desperate Housewives, so you're going to do well because people are just going to look. And then the second week, we did better, and I could actually start hearing people talk about it, you know, in the general... I would just walk around town and you could hear people talking about Grey's Anatomy and it was super weird. And you could hear the song like being played on people's phones and stuff like that. And then the third week, I think we surpassed the numbers of Boston Legal. And the fourth week, we were going to have like a party at Shonda's house to either say goodbye or to be like, yay, we're going to come back. And by the fourth week, we were this huge blowout hit. Um that no one could have expected. 
But um, but yeah, it was so weird because at the party at Shonda's house on the fourth episode, they already had like fan fiction, like putting characters together and writing these long things about them. It was it was an amazing experience because it was such a hit so fast. All right, everybody. It's a beautiful night to save lives. Let's have some fun. Twenty seasons later, Grey's Anatomy is still on the air. It's ABC's longest-running scripted primetime show, with spinoffs like Private Practice and Station 19. Certainly in those days, Hollywood was a tough environment for a Black woman. Here's Deborah Martin Chase again. You know, the success came pretty quickly, and it's just as a Black woman... Now, one of the things I told her very early on when Grace was starting, you need to make sure that people know that you're behind it. Like have your name and your face associated with this show so that you're building your personal brand as a creator. Shonda was a force from the beginning. Zoanne Clack. You know, she knew what she wanted. She knew the voice that she wanted in the show. And she would get what we did in the room and kind of switch it around, switch who was doing what, you know, the the main content would still be there, but she would just kind of play with it and move things around. And then we'd get it back and we'd be like, whoa, <laughs> to be able to put out scripts fast and good is kind of a very um, special skill for television. And Shonda had it in spades. Like she, even if she would like change everything around, she would put out the new version very fast. That speed, but also being able to not have that speed make a drop in quality, right? That's that's crucial. And I can kind of relate to that just being in, in journalism. Uh, one of the big innovations uh, from Shonda Rhimes and Grey's Anatomy is the diverse casting in the show. Uh, what were the conversations like around casting? I think she might have faced some obstacles in getting like the initial cast. I wasn't there for the initial casting. But I remember when I <laughs> when I joined you know, they were shooting the pilot. So the main people were there. And then Isaiah Washington was there. And it was amazing to me that other people not of color did not know who he was because I was like, oh my God, it's Isaiah Washington. It's what we call black famous. And they were, (laughs) who is that? Um, For Sandra's character, they had wanted to cast someone else, but then Shonda put her foot down. And when Sandra came in, she knew that that was Christina Yang. The only um, casting that was supposed to be done that she had actually put like a um, a color on, a, a, a race, a culture on was the Bailey character who was supposed to be like a perky blonde, little tiny person. Somehow Shonda Wilson came in and Shonda just knew that that was her Bailey. The rest of it was all kind of colorblind casting. But as it went on, as I got involved, I remember one of the, dictums at the beginning of the uh, show was any like drug dealers or prostitutes or those kinds of stereotypes could not be people of color. And that was always like the dictum in the first years. And, you know, the way Shonda put it was not, I want a diverse cast is it was more, I want to see the world the way I live it. We talked a little bit about diversity on screen was she as intentional when it came to diversity behind the camera as well, like writer's room and stuff like that? <laughs> the writer's room 
the writers room was diverse in gender more than um, color, at least at the beginning. Um, I remember when I got the first list of writers for the first season and, you know, me being a single woman, I was like, oh, I guess I'm not finding my husband here. <laughs> there were like three guys and eight women on the list. And one was a married teen. <laughs> Culturally, Sean and I were the only people of color at the beginning. And then, you know, there were people that came in and out throughout the years. At the time, I honestly was just thinking, it's a very entertaining show. This is Allison Herman, a TV critic at Variety. I am compelled by these actors and the various arrangements between them and the very fast-paced pulpy plots that were sort of proudly ridiculous. I didn't even think about what in retrospect is probably the most important legacy of the show, which is how effortlessly diverse it was in terms of casting and how totally unusual that was for a network drama at the time. And I think perhaps part of the Grey's Anatomy secret sauce, which is slightly different from the subsequent Shonda shows is it really didn't announce itself that way at all. You know, it didn't really announce itself that it was a big deal that Christina Yang was an Asian American woman or that the head of surgery at this hospital, all these young residents boss was a black woman. It just totally was confident in how it presented this world and I think that confidence really set the tone for the rest of the show and the impact it had. Just a few years later, Shonda ends up on a roughly six-year sprint. Shondaland grows from Grey's Anatomy to Scandal. I am not a toy you can play with when you're bored or lonely or horny. I am not the girl the guy gets at the end of the movie. I am not a fantasy. If you want me... Earn me! To how to get away with murder. Why is your penis on a dead girl's phone? And so Shonda Land ends up dominating this whole Thursday night lineup on ABC. They call it Thank God It's Thursday. So my first question to you about that is, what does this domination of a Thursday night, a whole block, mean for TV history? I think the fact that Shonda owned an entire block of programming automatically elevated her into the ranks of a certain echelon of showrunner. So some people who have been cited as predecessors to her would be a Stephen Bochco or a David E. Kelly, these producers who start as writers and end up managing an entire stable of television series that bear some recognizable mark of their sensibility. And among her contemporaries, you have... Dick Wolf, you have Ryan Murphy, you have Greg Berlanti. And not only is Shonda a member of this elite club by, I would say, the early 2010s, she's also quite obviously unique within that club. Your Ryans, your Gregs, your Stevens are not Shondas. They are not uh, black women who cast other black women in the leads of these programs. These are very proudly female skewing programs that operate within often denigrated genres. And digging a bit deeper into Shonda's brand, what is she giving to audiences? Why are people coming back? In terms of the specific characteristics of what those shows were, there's a very particular 
kind of Shonda Rhimes protagonist, which you can tell is maybe a little bit of um, projection of her self-image into her writing. Her show's star, very competent, very driven, very accomplished professional women in these various spheres, whether you're talking medicine or law or politics. And those women's aspirations and resolutions are taken very, very seriously within the realm of these shows, even as the shows have slightly silly twists and turns, like Olivia Pope's fantasy about making jam with her boyfriend, who's also the president, you know? And I think people really identified that sensibility and it allowed Shonda to become almost a mononym, right? Like when you say the name Shonda, you're only usually referring to Shonda Rhimes. And it means that viewers understand what they're getting when they get a Shonda Rhimes show. And it means that Shonda Rhimes herself really established her own profile. And then finally, I think a trademark of the Shonda show honestly has less to do with the shows or even Shonda themselves and with the audience response to it. So Scandal really was one of the shows that originated the concept of live tweeting and the fact that people would tune into these shows, they would use the hashtag TGIT because it was understood there is a specific time and place where you can both watch these shows and talk about it with other people in real time. The actors, Carrie Washington, for example, were very active in participating in this. And it was a real moment in leaning in to how people watch TV at the time. Yeah, she created really a sense of community through TGIT. I remember being one of those people who looked forward to Thursday nights and being able to engage with people, including the actors from these shows, about it. And it, it got to be a thing where, like, you know, I would regularly talk to, like, Katie Lowe and, you know, other cast members. It's like, oh, OK, great to see you on Thursday again. You know, this gladiator community and stuff like that. So I, I think that's fascinating. At this time, Shonda Rhimes was the highest paid showrunner in television, self-reported. She made an estimated $2 billion for ABC. I will brag. I am the highest paid showrunner in television. But then she had a few issues with the network. She told Hollywood Reporter in 2017 that network TV had unforgiving constraints and she felt like she was dying. But one incident put her over. That as a Disney employee, she had an all-inclusive pass for her and a second one for her nanny. So when Shonda's sister right. came to town, she asked the network for another pass and was told that they oh, never Lord. give out extras. This is true. So, well, they eventually gave <laughs> wow. her a pass, but the pass didn't work when her sister got to Disneyland. Shonda called an ABC exec and he snubbed her request and said, don't you have $154 for a ticket? What? Wow. What? All Ooh, right. Well, wow. it pissed off Miss Shonda to the point of no return, literally. And mm. she called her team and told them she was moving to Netflix and inked a deal worth over $300 million. Oh. Did y'all hear me? Wow. Oh, Let's go, Shonda. Wow. Let's go. That's right, Shonda. Wow. That's right, Shonda. She moved to Netflix. And in 2017, mind you, no one else had done this. She began pumping out hits like Inventing Anna. I will not call Anna Delvey a dumb socialite. I'm smart. I'm a businesswoman. And most famously, Bridgerton. Do you think that there is a corner of this earth that you could travel to 
far away enough to free me from this torment. You are the bane of my existence and the object of all my desires. Shonda Rhimes was absolutely one of the first showrunners. She was almost the first domino to fall. She was this bulwark of a conventional broadcast network schedule and did still understand how to get people to watch in real time and feel like they had to. The fact that she went from sort of symbolizing the evolution and progression of how broadcast TV could evolve to being like, no, I'm actually going to move to this new platform that operates in a totally different way. I think that was a huge, huge moment. And you'll see in the reporting at the time, other executives, I believe Dana Walden of Fox gave several quotes to this effect of, I read about that in the papers and I knew something was going to change. So Shonda Rhimes was the first of these showrunners to get a really sizable blockbuster deal from Netflix to take her services there. But she wasn't the only one for very long. You know, Ryan Murphy followed very shortly afterward. Kenya Barris. A lot of the other deals that were inked with other major showrunners have not necessarily panned out. Kenya Barris left Netflix. Ryan Murphy took a while and several releases before he kind of hit his stride and released a few genuine massive hits. And I think Shonda stands out not just for being first and for setting the precedent for that type of deal, but she's also been uniquely successful in how that deal has panned out for her and allowed her to extend her artistic and creative practice into this new era of her career. You know, those those streaming deals, they, they're relatively new. And I'm glad you brought up how they haven't all been that successful, even if you look at other streamers. What do you think that Shonda did to ensure this Netflix deal had success? Because it seems like it could be a risky move. One thing she did that I thought was very admirable was that she took her time. So this deal was, you know, 2017-2018. Uh, Bridgerton is her first release. It does not come out until December of 2020. And I think Bridgerton is really a masterful first step in the streaming Shonda epic because it's very recognizably a Shonda show in some ways. It has, again, the soapy, romantic, romance-influenced plot. It has a progressive take on race and gender. But on Netflix, she was able to take a bigger risk, notably get much more explicit and sexual, which was always certainly a theme in her work. But she's able to, you know perhaps be more uh, creatively uninhibited when she doesn't have to deal with advertisers and network censors. Um, it just feels like Bridgerton was a striking point, like a real just cultural wave. You started having Bridgerton pop-ups. We had one here in Chicago where there was a whole ball and people got to dress up. And how do you feel like these projects, especially these these Netflix projects, are being received by the TV audience? Well, Bridgerton, I think one of many indications of what a phenomenon it is and how successful it is, is that it's one of a handful of shows that Netflix is attempting to essentially turn into a franchise. So if you're a company like Netflix, you don't own the Harry Potter franchise like Warner Brothers does. You don't own Star Wars and Marvel like Disney does. So you're kind of faced with this conundrum of how do we take the stuff that we're making and turn it into something really lasting, like a well that we can keep going back to from time to time to time. 
And Bridgerton, I think, is fascinating because, like, you know, imagine, like, a theme park about Regency-era England, but um, that's kind of what Netflix has leaned into because they understand it's really struck a chord. Yeah, she's really creating something unique uh, for the streamer itself. Um, from the TGIT era, Shondaland, to what we see in Queen Charlotte and Bridgerton, what thorough lines do you see in the storytelling? I think you see this willingness to uh, cater to an audience that maybe isn't used to being taken seriously. Whether that literally means members of the communities, queer people, women, Black viewers, Black women who maybe haven't felt represented on screen before, but also the kinds of genres she works in. You know, she's very unashamed of the fact that there's a lot of lineage in common between her shows and a conventional soap opera. The fact that Bridgerton is adapted from, like, a capital R romance series of novels. You know, those are the kinds of stories that I feel like are often very dismissed. And there's a willingness to own the sort of ridiculousness of, you know, there's the iconic moment from How to Get Away with Murder. Why is your penis on another man's phone? You know, um... Or, or the, the memes of Olivia Pope drinking red wine while she's wearing a white pantsuit. Like, I think there's an understanding that all of this is maybe a little silly, but also, you know, believing there's nothing wrong with that and leaning into that and being able to make something truly entertaining that a lot of people feel proud to affiliate themselves with because maybe other entertainers or entertainment companies haven't been as willing to indulge that taste as much. So what's next for Shonda Rhimes? Shonda Land announced a new murder mystery series set in the White House titled The Residence. But Shonda's not limiting herself to just one genre. She's mentioned, you know, wanting to try maybe something in sci-fi that has like a time travel element to it, which made my ears perk up because I've never seen her do something like that, so I'd love to see her try. I know she licensed the memoir of Ellen Powell, who used to work at Reddit, which would be about kind of misogyny in Silicon Valley, and that very much fits her mold of career-oriented female protagonists. But I think what I just want to continue to see is what she's already demonstrated in her Netflix era, which is taking advantage of the freedom to try and do new things while also maintaining her sense of her own strengths and making those strengths felt in the shows. You take it in. You breathe this rare air. You feel alive. You be yourself. You truly, finally, always be yourself. Thank you. Making Shonda was produced by Hina Shravastava and edited by Justin Boole. I'm your host, Brandon Pope. Our executive producer is Brendan Benazek. More episodes are on the way, so be sure to press that subscribe button and we'll see you next time.